Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. And today my guest is Michael Taylor Fontaine. He's a casting director up here in Portland, Oregon. Actually, he moved from Los Angeles uh, after working there for years as a casting director and um, has set up a new shop here in, in Portland called Casting House Northwest. And I was fortunate enough to take a very extensive uh, acting class with him and learned a lot and had an opportunity to sit down and talk shop with him. And even though this podcast is to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs, there's so many things that are involved with filmmaking and so many things involved with being an entrepreneur uh, business person that this is just one aspect that I think it's really great to look into, especially if you're an actor. And it just helps see the bigger picture of things. But before we begin, you can always go to freegearguide.com to get yourself a free resource guide. It's a list of equipment that I use to make a feature film with no crew. And you can get that again at freegearguide.com. Okay, let's get on with the interview with Michael Taylor Fontaine here on the Film Trooper Podcast. Hey, we're here. We're uh, <laughs> live recording. I'm here with um, Michael Taylor Fontaine. These are on? These are on. These microphones are on. We're okay. on. And we're here at the Casting House Northwest. How do you like to right. say it? Do you like to just call it Casting House NW or Northwest? <laughs> NW stands for Northwest. Right, I know. <laughs> but if you, try to, if you try to Google it that way, it won't work for you. Right. So. Casting House NW. There you yeah. go. And, you know, we met uh, because... Um, one of your, your partners, mm-hmm. um, Jessica Bork, and I had worked on this acting gig. Like it's like a, almost like a three-day short film for this mm-hmm. like top-secret, you know, high-tech company. I don't know what it was. But we kept in touch, and you came up to uh, the Northwest, and you relocated from Los Angeles. Yes. And, uh, and set up shop here with the, this casting house. And not only that, but you're, you also have uh, acting classes. And I right. am a lucky person who have... T- I took the, the, the four-week class with you, yes. and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Great. But once you – this is like – since this, this is the Film Trooper podcast, and this is for film, uh, helping filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Right. So we just talk shop and business, but, you know, we'll, but I think there's an aspect of this business that uh, a lot of people might be interested in hearing is the perspective of the casting director. All right. Uh, what you might see uh, in all your years of doing this of like – like you know what actors should know and, <clears throat> yeah and then also the business end what directors and producers uh, your clients come in and what they're looking for it i think that what, you mean, bridge, what, what happens when the doors close yes yeah. <laughs> when the, just it's just i think it's you know pulling the cur- curtain back and just kind of give her a better look at yeah you know what it's like to be a casting director yeah well you know i was i was an actor for 30 years or so and then i stopped to have a family and then uh um uh, after several years of being in the hotel and restaurant business, uh, I went back into the acting business by becoming uh, working with casting directors in, in Los yeah. Angeles. So I've looked at it from both sides now. Um, what do you want to know? Well, let's talk about, um, was there a specialty that you focus on in Los Angeles? or Who was your mentor when you learned how to um, uh, do all the casting? You know, the, the, that's the weird thing. Um, when I came into casting, I had I had had more experience than most people uh, as an actor. Uh, 
Okay. And, uh, and I'd also trained uh, uh, with a number of really great teachers, but uh, probably the greatest influences on me were uh, Wynne Hanman from American Place Theater in, in, uh, in New York, who is a great director. Uh, he's a Sanford Meisner protege. He had three protégés. Hmm. It was Wynne, Bill Esper, and also uh, Sidney Pollack. Wow. Those were like his sons. And uh, so he was a great teacher and a great director, and I learned a lot about directing from him. And then also, I'm going to say a name that people... Charles Nelson Riley. Wow. Uh, who was a great director. Um, directed a lot of Broadway. Directed at the New York uh, Opera Company. And, the, and the, uh, the Met was a coach for lots of, uh, of legendary opera singers. Um, people know him from the match game, but he truly was brilliant in a classroom and a really wonderful director so I learned a lot from him but uh, the point that I was coming to is that since I'd already had a lot of uh, a background which made me a fairly strong director in a room I kind of recreated the role of what a person does in that room uh, mm-hmm. at that time uh, I think I think we began to take more time with actors uh, sort of coaching them and preparing them for spots preparing we because we talked to directors every day in uh, in casting and this was specifically casting commercials and uh, infomercials, but mainly commercials. Uh, because we talked to directors every day about their vision, um, we were able to begin to adjust people and move them toward that vision in the process of, of the audition. Yeah. And uh, so I, I'm not sure if I had a mentor in casting. My mentors were my acting teachers the oh, years okay. before, and I kind of brought what I knew from being an actor and having trained as an actor for so many years. Uh, into the, into casting, and uh, I think the 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 business of casting commercials changed a lot through the many years that I was doing that in Los Angeles, and in part because of the changes we were making at Ross Lacey Casting. That's the company I was working for at the time. Hmm. Um, what kind of changes uh, that you you saw? Like? Well, for instance. Um, not only we were we were coaching people in first auditions and preparing them for their their next audition and also helping at that it began to become uh working with directors and with uh, copywriters to sort of develop the material during the process of casting but uh also um when callbacks came around of course we'd say nothing in the room but outside the room we'd prepare actors to come into the room for their audition so we'd be listening to everything that the directors saying and we'd prepare the actors outside the room uh for their audition in the room so that the director wouldn't have to repeat themselves uh, himself herself let's get the grammar right um uh each time an actor came in they wouldn't have to say the same spiel it's already been taken care of outside of the room and um also uh something that people don't really know is that um any kind of piece, whether it's a commercial or a theatrical piece, whatever it is, is in a state of being developed while you're auditioning for it. So <laughs> even during a callback session, uh, material is still being developed. The vision's being developed. The, the way it's being played, the copy itself is being developed. And changes are made throughout the day. And it, it became uh, uh, the role of someone. My role was specifically a, a casting session director. It became our role to... Uh, communicate those changes to the actors. Yeah, interesting. So now as an actor, like I would, you know, normally you get the call. Your agent says, hey, you have an audition. This is your time. Uh, obviously the the agent 
prefers that you not change your time. Just like if that's your time, you right. just go, you go. Because there's a lot of other factors that mm -hmm. don't need the added pressure of like, oh, can you switch out Scott for this time slot, right. this time slot? Because as I understand it, um, when you're putting together the, the casting day, the, the session to see everybody, you, sometimes you want to see, I want to see all my males 40 mm -hmm. plus or whatever mm -hmm. in this time slot right. or whatever. So Yeah, it's a schedule. Yeah, It's called a schedule. <laughs> and, and it became commonplace. Over, again, this was one of the changes I was seeing over the years I was in Los Angeles. That was about 14 year span there. I began to see actors take more and more liberty with their appointment times. And, and you would want to go out and just yell at the top of your lungs, it's a schedule. Yeah. <laughs> it's a schedule for a reason. And many times um, when, when actors wouldn't come at their time, uh, they were not only letting other actors down who kind of needed their presence at the proper time, because we had people perhaps working together, doing some scene work, and we had to take actors that had no partner to work with. They'd have to use me as a reader or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it would also make it difficult for the actor because they'd show up out of category and we'd have to do the same thing for them. It wasn't perhaps the best environment for them to be auditioning. Right. right. Um, uh, sometimes, however, it would not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate it, but sometimes, uh, sometimes I would see people who ended up being on tape by themselves, and they'd simply get more attention because the camera was then tighter on them <laughs> and they'd get callbacks and stuff. But uh, I, I guess what you're, what you're alluding to, though, is the responsibility of an actor to treat it like a business yes. and to make the proper phone calls when, uh, when appointments need to be changed and that sort of thing. And um, there is etiquette. There's a whole etiquette to aud the audition process uh, that actors really should know, and it's a huge part of getting hired or not hired. Right. And also, to back that up, sometimes just knowing who your representation is, because your agent needs to be that professional as well mm -hmm. to get back to the casting uh, director in the session to say this, this is my people that will be there mm -hmm. or whatever it is the schedule so it's it's hard I, I know for an, I was surprised in LA uh, I had a dear friend who was a casting director who mm -hmm. passed away a couple of years ago um, sadly um, but during the times I would help her with her casting sessions or she was casting a project for me mm -hmm. some actresses just wouldn't show up yep. like it's just It'd be astonishing, yep. you know, and you think about how hard and how many people just kill for an opportunity yes. to have an audition. Yes. That, that some would just blow it off or just think it's not worth it or something happens. Yeah. Or just There's no communication. They just never show up. Yeah. And in, in a large city like Los Angeles, <laughs> there are so many, you know, really good actors yeah. around that if you're one of the lucky 60 to 120 that made it on the schedule that day for an audition and you blow off that audition, you already beat out a thousand actors just to get that audition. Yeah. You know, you were selected. And, uh, wow, it's, it's uh, really a bad judgment, isn't it, to just blow it off. And then the other thing is, if we're talking about commercials, 80% of the work, 80% of casting for actors, uh, our actors' auditions are for commercials. Mm-hmm. It's the bread and butter of an actor's career. And uh, if you're blowing off commercials because you got something else going on that you think is more important, um, it's a mistake, you know, because it's, it's uh, it, it, at least in a city like Los Angeles, and even, you know, even here, it's mm -hmm. still your bread and butter. Uh, it's getting commercials that allows people the freedom to do the kinds of projects that they want to do. 
you know, if, if you have no money, you're, you're bussing tables. You don't have time to, to do that uh, play you wanted to do for free or that somebody's independent film project or, uh, or, or you know, you, you can't uh, sustain your career. It's interesting. I um, had a discussion on this happy hour I was last night with, mm -hmm. uh, some, with uh, the act, some actors, and, and it came down to the understanding when I started to act again up here in uh, Portland that I knew being in the industry for so long, being on the production side for so long, but I also had done acting when I was younger, the um, being a SAG actor for a very short stint, the the understanding of like almost also the responsibility you have to your agent because mm -hmm. they're relying on you to like you know land the job. They get paid if you get paid if you land a yeah. job. So I feel this <clears throat> overwhelming responsibility every time to land a job. Yes, to well to my agent says you have an audition. Yeah, you know if you if you think. I'll go for it. I'll go for it and and do my best. To you land do the your job best. because I know that I'm there. Like if I can land the job, that yeah. means they're getting paid. Yeah, that means that uh, that agency gets paid. My agent gets paid, and that means something to me in terms of that sort sure. of personal responsibility. Sure. Although you know, there there have been actors that I've that I've seen, you know, countless times over the years who just weren't weren't bookers, and uh, and I remember one. Uh, just stopping at the end of his audition, he didn't blow his audition. He did his usual great audition, but he just he said, "Why does, why do you guys see me, you know why?" <laughs> and the answer is because you're good, because you're good, and we believe in you, and we want to see you get a job. Yeah. And uh, we weren't going to stop seeing them just because they weren't booking. Uh, and for 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 this actor who always came in and did solid work to feel a responsibility to book. Um, it was just putting undue pressure on himself. Yeah, and in the end, um, I've seen this uh, this actor uh, develop a, a pretty good film career as a, a character actor, and he does a lot of theater in Los Angeles. Still doesn't book a lot of commercials, hmm. you know. But you know, we would continue seeing him because he was great. Uh, interesting too. I was just thinking because of something we were talking about before. Uh, one time, anybody, you know who Michael Ensign is? Character actor. You don't have to. He's one of those guys. That's like I don't know that guy's either. name, but I know his face. Yeah, uh, really fine actor. Trained at RADA, and um, in the year that the Titanic came out, he was in Titanic. Okay. Um, I caught him in the hallway. I hadn't seen him in a little while, and you know, I asked him how it was going, and he said, "Great. I I, I did seven movies this year, and you know, you might have noticed one was Titanic." And it's like, <laughs> "Yeah, I know." And uh, and then he had no small role in that film. He was he was playing you know a really sizable role in that film. And he said, I have no money. Mm. Really? Why? He said, I didn't book any commercials. I was so busy working on these films, I didn't have time to book any commercials. So that point I was making about yeah. how important commercials can be to sustaining a career. You know, even when you're having a successful year, things can be tough if you don't have this other source of income. It is amazing. I remember working with some uh, young actors years ago. It was just like a beer commercial the guy was on. He said, man, I just, you know, racked in 75 grand from that thing that one year. Oh, you know. pharmaceutical commercial, no doubt. No, for a beer commercial. Beer? Yeah. This is, but he wasn't grand. even Whoa. like a featured. He was just yeah. like, uh, you know. It all pays the same, my friend. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, you know, for when we were in our early 20s, yeah. to hear that kind of, that number just from one commercial was astonishing. That is know? astonishing. So, How many years ago was that? Many, many years ago. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. really happen so no. much anymore. <laughs> yeah, things have changed. What's the, what's the biggest sort of um, 
myth or misnomer that people that actors may have of the casting process like they think like um because sometimes they go in it's almost intimidating you know you know mm-hmm. like the depending depending on what casting director they're busy all day so there's there's no emotion behind it you know they just they're, yeah. they're going through the motions of like all right hit your mark say this is and yeah. this is how you're going to run it and i know you always run into that yeah I, and i i i i'm not a big proponent of running a casting session that way i really think you know uh that you need to sustain your energy throughout the day and give to actors at the end of the day the same energy and care that you were giving to them at the beginning of the day. It's an important thing to do. All you have to do is work at it to make that happen. So I guess I'm, I'm saying, first of all, you, you know, you have to know that you're there because the casting director wants you to do well. You know? Right. And that's- we're on your side. We called you in the first place. Yeah. You know, we wanted to see you. So the biggest the, the misnomer, you say, or... Misunderstanding. Yeah, of, just like this. Yeah, this I, I think it comes from. Well, I'm not sure where it comes from. Uh, there are two things I would say. One is the size of the performance. Uh, I was talking to a director last night, who, who clued me in on why this ha- why this is. Uh, you know, it's like why didn't I think of that? Uh, when I was an actor, 30 years ago, um, I was pretty proud to own a 19-inch uh, Sony television. That's pretty big. Yeah. Um, nowadays, you pay the same price and you can buy yourself a 50-inch television with much better resolution. So uh, when I was doing commercials and even sitcom and that sort of thing, I had a sitcom in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, things were played rather broadly. You know, Think of Three's Company reruns and yeah. how big John Ritter was playing for that screen. Well, today... No, it's not, it's not going to fly. And the reason is because the screens have gotten so large that you are now uh, able to see the actor. You can see what they're doing. Uh, so before you were really having to play, like on stage, you are having to play at a higher level of energy just to get out into that living room. Nowadays, that's no longer necessary. So things are played at a pretty flat, easy level. You know, people aren't pushing a lot of energy out there anymore. That's fascinating. I didn't even think yeah. about that. And then the other thing, the thing that I was going to say that the misconception people have is that they have to do something really different, you know. So what happens is they get all obsessed with their different choice and um, they forget to listen to what they were asked to do. Um, When uh, you go to a casting session and the casting director tells you what it is they're looking for, that information has come from the director. We're just trying to satisfy the director's vision. So uh, if you go too much off of that idea that's being communicated to you, then you're taking your performance completely away from the vision that the director has. And the, per- the, the, the way that the director arrived at his vision was working in collaboration with the copywriter. And the copywriter was working with an agency that sold this idea to someone who, who owns the product that you're making the the spot for and that's what he bought and it's what he wants to see or she he or she right right <laughs> could be a female yeah. we, as a matter of fact we just work for a company owned by a woman big company um see you see my point yeah uh so um often uh i've seen actors make choices that surprised me and they were delightful because they were done within the context of what we were trying to achieve and what mm-hmm. had been communicated to them but other times people will try to just go another way with it so they stand out and it's like that's really not what we're trying to accomplish here you know um 
You can stand out in a performance by simply playing it honestly. You know, perhaps you're the most honest guy of the day. <laughs> and that's a standout performance. It's actually interesting, the, um, this whole aspect of, you know, getting outside of your head, getting uh-huh. outside of your being, get, getting out of it um, so that you are truly just reacting or, like you said, being. Oh. Mm-hmm. And then I was fortunate... Uh, fortunate enough to have one of my first um, auditions up here was for a role of a dad and I had to work alongside these uh, little kids mm-hmm. that was going to be, be my son and in the process of doing so they you know they paired us up like okay I think this kid might look like your son yeah. so I was outside in the hallway running lines with with the, the little actor and I realized that he was he was brand new and he was he was nervous and I let go all my hang-ups and just I was just there for the kid just yeah. trying to make sure to help him out so in the process in the audition doing that the director said okay that, can we pair you up with this other kid and, and just kind of make it work that way and from that lesson it was, it was one of those things like you, you, you read about it as an actor you hear about it and you, and you try but then you sometimes you forget to apply it and because I was forcing that for, my hand was forced to not think about myself but to think about the kid mm-hmm. It's just let go of my performance, and I got the role. And from that that point on, I remember just trying to apply that in every audition. You listened. Go. Yeah, well, yeah, let go and just not worry yeah. about me. First rule of acting: right. listen. And then, um, you know, I did some auditions with um, uh, Cast Iron, who does all the, the uh, um, casting for Grimm and right. Leverage and stuff up here. And working with Aaron Goodman up uh, up here, you know, she, there was a, there was a time I went in for an audition that had. Um, the char- there was two characters um, that were speaking, and mm-hmm. I used my imagination. Like I'm talking this character on the left side, right, right side. But then she's no, no, just just play it all off to the the reader, you yeah. know. And then not only that, but I didn't realize like how close the camera was because you know she's pretty far away. I didn't know how zoomed in the camera was. But after mm-hmm. meeting with her uh, in this private session that she held, I realized she was just shooting my face. Mm-hmm. Like that was it. Mm-hmm. So it was like ever since I had that meeting with her. Um, it just showed that, okay, I understand that she's only recording my face, and all I have to do is play off the reader. And I started thinking about my performance and just reacting to the reader's performance. Right. And I got, like, you know, callback after callback <clears throat> after that. Yeah. But I do have some, the funny stories where I was in for Grimm, and Aaron said, can you do it with, like, an Eastern European accent? <laughs> you know, no, so I just laughed. So I well, kind of, of course, mumbled. Yeah. I, did, I mumbled something, <laughs> and then I, go, I got in a callback. So I yeah. go in the callback, and I... Redo my performance the way I did the first time, mm-hmm. and then the, you know the the director and producer of the show uh, of that episode were there, and uh, the first thing out of their mouths, <laughs> the director said, "What are you Hawaiian?" <laughs> 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 so we cracked up. I realized I'm not going to get the role, but you know, but it 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 just lightened up the load, and like I, then I got called back again from some other Eastern European thug and. The other director said, uh, "What are you?" And, and I said, "My mom's from Thailand." And she says, "Ah, oh, he says, yes, ah, Saudi crop." You know, so he started talking to me in Thai. So it was funny because I said, "I'm not gonna get this role either." <laughs> so the roles I went up for, I knew, but I, it was wonderful to have that opportunity. Yeah. But only because I had those notes. <laughs> they, that, they might have decided to change it to a guy from Thailand. That could be. You never know. Who knows? But I was finally able to get back on the show, uh, get on the show as a mm-hmm. cop. And that's something that up here in local TV land is like with all the the day player um, roles and the co-star, co-starring roles. I mean, there's 
very few rare occasions does a local actor get an opportunity to become a guest star. Yeah. You know, um, I've only seen it a handful of times, mm -hmm. but most of the time they're calling up from the L.A. base to come up to do a guest star. Whether or not you're in Vancouver, whether or not you're in Atlanta, yeah. whether or not in, in Portland, wherever it is. Mm -hmm. So just having an opportunity to be a day player um, is sort of the, the golden nugget up here. But At the moment. At the moment. I think it'll change. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I've been watching. <laughs> I've been watching. And I've been seeing roles played by actors that I knew were from other, uh, either L.A. or New York. And I thought, uh, I know somebody here in Portland could do this role. You know, it'll happen. Yeah. Yeah. As long as, uh, as, long as the community stays serious about their craft and keeps working on it. Let me ask you a bigger picture of things. Um, film and television and the, 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 the onslaught of media just around us all, all over. Where does all this stuff fit in, in terms of what is sort of your predictions of 2014? You know, like <laughs> media in general. Just, so, I was just curious. At this point, I go from a guy who has some expertise to a guy with just an opinion. Um, <laughs> hey. Well, I think it's fascinating what's going on with new technology because uh, it's becoming less and less expensive to create things. And um, I'm also uh, interested and involved in music, and I've seen that industry change entirely over the last uh, few years, and still hasn't worked itself out. We still don't know how it's all going to play out. I just know that my, my, my adult kids in their 20s, when they were in their teens, would say to me, I'm not interested in anything major record companies have to put out. I don't like any of their stuff. And they would find all of their music uh, online mm -hmm. or from friends, and then they'd download it uh, illegally. And, and, right, and nobody right. was getting paid. Yeah. But in the end, um, they and their friends would beg for 20 bucks and go to a concert and end up buying the CD while they were there. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I guess that's how it was working out for groups. I don't know. Um, I don't know how everybody's going to get paid in the future, but I do know that I'm seeing um, uh, lots of people because of the the affordability of the technology of being able to create uh, either web webisodes or go ahead and shoot a pilot or shoot a film. Uh, I have friends that have done um, a few feature films uh, over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. They've been able to put the money together and, and, and shoot a feature film. They've gotten uh, distribution. Uh, some of the distribution was through fairly impressive companies, you know, like Lionsgate. Yeah. And stuff. Uh, I haven't seen anybody buy a new house or, you know, a neat new car or anything yet. Um, but it, 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 the, the thing is, at least you, you know, there has to. Okay, here's what I think. <laughs> um, it used to be that there was a gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper was a network or a studio or a record company, and those gatekeepers were deciding who we get the opportunity to create material. And then they would distribute that material if they decided they wanted to. Sometimes they wouldn't. They would kill material. But with, with the affordability of, of new technology, there's no longer a gatekeeper that can keep you from creating something. Mm -hmm. You can make your project. You can make a record. You can make a movie. You can make a webisode. You can make a television show. You can make it. But there's still a gatekeeper in the distribution process. You know? So I think that's the difference. Yeah. Um, and uh, and there has to be actually some gatekeeper somewhere that separates the wheat from the chaff, you know. Right. Um, but I don't think we know exactly yet 
who that gatekeeper is going to be and what the distribution process is and how we get paid. You know, I have a feeling that um, before too long, the network system is going to be virtually gone. They're just going to become production houses and that uh, our computers will be our cable box mm -hmm. and, uh, and that uh, organizations like Funny or Die will become distributors. You know? Yeah, a cha yeah, a channel. I think almost distribution has like been shattered. What's really the thing is um, marketing. Uh -huh. you know, really, that's yeah. really where it's at because yeah. the studios have the, the marketing dollars to what they do is a wide net sort of reach, and they just hammer in your head like this movie's coming out this weekend, this weekend, or you know this television show. Like watch the premiere, watch the premiere, this, yeah. this, and that. Stuff to to learn from that, but they're casting a wide net. To some extent, you know, they might advertise sort of their their action film towards like on the sports channels or sports yeah. avenues just to try to grab that demographic that may be interested. Um, for the independent, it's um, we do have the means to distribute to the world mm -hmm. via the on, a lot of online channels, yeah. but to be heard above the noise is mm -hmm. a whole different thing. And I, yeah. I do agree that there is some place for these gatekeepers or something to. Of all the noise, if somebody to you know passerby or like, what should I pay attention to? Yeah. You know? Well, in, in part, right now, I think it is uh, it is advertising dollars in that uh, the people I know that have successful webisodes, for instance, <clears throat> the one reason that they're successful is they get to continue the work because um, some sponsor has come to them and has placed an ad before their webisode plays, mm -hmm. or put an ad on the site that you go to. To get to their webisode or whatever, uh, so just that their material is still out there and available, and they're able to produce more of it, right. I guess uh, puts them in the place where more people can find them. That's interesting. If you back up, like sort of the big picture of like history of artists, I mean, even the great artists were they had patrons, people that paid them. Yeah. I mean, uh, da Vinci and. Michelangelo and you know they're being paid by the church or you know like paint this picture or do this sculpture you know and I think their their viewpoints and their philosophy is was different I think than even what the what their patrons are paying them you know and so like in some respect we may be kind of going back to that where the artist or an entity needs to have some sort of patron financial backer yeah you know what was the girl a couple a couple of years ago there was one of those TED talks and there was a musician, a girl who did a Kickstarter. I think it's Amanda um, not Palmer, is it? I don't remember. I think so. I think she's pretty huge. It's like uh, I think it's Amanda something. Yeah. Yeah, and she became very famous. For yeah, that. and so her Kickstarter became here. Uh, finance my lifestyle. Finance yeah. make it so that I can eat, sleep, you know, all those things, and I'll continue to give you music. Right. Which that was pretty interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, instead of selling CDs, she just well, got people, to, her friends, to back her. I had on uh, a few weeks ago um, a very successful online uh, businessman and mm -hmm. uh, marketer and entrepreneur um, who was here in Portland for the last five years, but he has since left because he and his wife and family are moving to Europe where they're going to be traveling around Europe because he can ha afford that lifestyle because yeah. he has an online business that does very well. Gee, I should listen to that podcast. <laughs> but his thing was... I asked him, really, what advice would you give filmmakers or artists, you know, trying to survive or make a sustainable living? He said, you know, just go with that thousand fans uh, uh, analogy that was written by the 
editor of Wired magazine, I forget mm. his name, but it's, essentially the concept is if every artist could have a thousand true fans or a hundred true fans, if you have a thousand true fans that are willing to pay you a hundred dollars a year for your art, for your work, it's a lot of money. Then you make, you know, you make a living, and that's sort of just the basic concept there. So it is interesting thing for actors because, gosh, you know, being actors, you know, having that why we found ourselves being a part of the world of acting. Um, this happy hour last night, I was just conversing with other actors and just how much I just enjoy the process of that, just being in the moment of like doing a scene and coming out of the scene just feeling exhilarated because like that was super fun. I don't know what just happened, mm-hmm. but that was just super fun just doing that project and you just, you want that high again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're willing to put yourself to hell and torture when it's so hard and doesn't feel right. But if you can get it just to, that, that connection with the, another actor or the performance, you come away from it. You know, whether or not it's in class, whether or not it's an audition, whether or not you're making like $2 an hour or whatever for this independent project, or whether or not you're getting paid a lot of money for something, the process and the exhilaration is the same. And, uh, and I think it's interesting for an actor as an artist, how do you make, how do you get those 1,000 fans to pay you, you know, $100 a year, mm. where, you, where you're relying on other people to create the projects and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I was curious of your time in Los Angeles. Did you see a shift over the last few years? Yeah. Um, and what kind of shift was that? Well, it was related to what you just said, and that is uh, when I... When I started in the business, uh, 1970, I started in 1970, and all the years that I spent as an actor, nearly 30. Is that right? Yeah, 30. Uh, 20, 20, mid 20s. Um, uh, everybody was looking for somebody else to give them the uh, the okay to act. You know, you needed a job in order to act, and. Um, and now, because of the technology that I mentioned, and for other reasons, um, fortunately, that's not people's mentality anymore. Now they create their own projects. And uh, uh, in, in part, what I saw when I was in Los Angeles was this tremendous pool of comedy talent and comedy writers that have uh, come out of, what's it, 60 years now, 50, 60 years of the Second City uh, uh, Second City classes and and then Improv Olympic in Chicago and uh, you know the, the improv yeah they've come out of improv and uh, and it's a deeper talent pool than I've ever seen and they have the ability to write boy they can really write and uh, so they're able to write their own projects and uh, they're no longer feeling you know like they're well you're sort of a victim aren't you if you're just waiting for someone else <laughs> to give you an okay to be who it is you think you're supposed to be uh, they they now have the power. Right. To create this, 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 uh, the old dream of being discovered. Yeah, the starlit dream of being discovered in a coffee shop. But I got to tell you, yeah. it wasn't always this way. I mean, I wasn't a part of this, but I was. I used to be a backup singer when I first started out. I was a backup singer, and uh, and then I found my way into doing musicals, and so I was working for. Uh, I never worked for Carol Burnett, but I worked with a lot of her friends and people around her. Uh, I've mentioned Charles Nelson Riley, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I was aware of all of his friends and people that he kind of came up in the business with. These people created their own material. Carol Burnett created her own career uh, by writing shows 
and um, she wrote uh, shows with uh, Ken and Mitzi Welsh, who were a, a, a writing team. Uh, Charles Nelson Riley and the people around him worked with Jerry Herman, who, as you know, wrote, you know, classic Broadway musicals. And they would write special material for themselves. They would write shows and reviews. And these reviews would lead to uh, their discovery. You know, that's Carol Burnett. I believe her first uh, real uh, exposure came because of some special material that was written for her by Ken and Mitzi Welch for a show that she produced herself, I believe in the basement of, mm-hmm. of a boarding house. And um, I, I can't remember if it was, uh, she was on the Gary Moore show, you gotta be old to get these references. Uh, <laughs> or, or did Sullivan, I think it was Gary Moore show or something, she went on and did this song from her review and she became uh, you know, an entity at that point and went on to this great Broadway career and, you know, okay, this, nobody yeah. asked me, but I think, I think she produced the best show ever produced for television. The Carol Burnett show. I could argue that's possibly true. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's a testament because at the time, even today, like the fight, the fight for women to be, you know, their own. Like you, you see it a blip of it once in a while. You know that the mass media will, or the networks will, the good old boy network will pick up. You know, and hoof. But you know, there's like forty. <laughs> there's like forty. I think forty-five percent of. Um, people working in the industry are all women, I think, you know. So yeah. it's just like, it's not being equally um, displayed or shared or, you know, and it's still interesting that there's this discussion about, you know, women, like, women in the business are articles about that. When it's like, it's almost infuriating for them because it's like, why are we still having this conversation after, what, Carol Burnett? What, well, what are we, 40 years away know, from that? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you want to go way back to Mae West, that would yeah, be interesting. That's, that's a person who created, she was a dynamo. She created not only her own career in show business, but uh, she was one of the biggest landowner, owners in, landowners in Los Angeles area. Uh-huh. She was fabulously wealthy, a very smart woman, just from her own talent to write and produce. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see that once in a while. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of brilliant women in the business, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, Carol Burnett. Let me ask you, because we're going to talk about your uh, your acting classes. That, okay. Because I took your acting class. Yeah. I think it's worth people knowing, because there's a stigma that people, actors might think of like, oh, I got to learn commercial acting. Mm-hmm. Like, so what is the the stigma that people think, like, what is commercial acting versus, like... Well, I know I used to think this when I was... Yeah. You know, I wanted to be uh, on a television show or I wanted to do movies or, or be on a Broadway play or something like that. And I never thought, boy, I really want to do commercials. Uh, but the reason a commercial acting course um, is of a great deal of value is because auditioning for commercials is of a great deal of value. Not only for what it can get you to help support your career, but the, the skills you learn. Uh, I've watched dozens of people go from being a new kid in town to being a very successful actor, writer, producer, all kinds of careers. And I watched them develop their skill set while auditioning for and performing in commercials. And the reason it's um, the reason it's such a good thing to learn is because of the demands of the of the audition. Uh, there's only one camera in the room. There's not various setups there's not an over-the-shoulder shot there's not a master shot there's one camera in the room and you have to learn to find a camera 
Um, if you're speaking to someone and you're, you're looking them in the eyes, there's a pretty good chance since there's only one camera shooting both of you, it now has seen the side of your face and your ear. Mm-hmm. So you have to learn camera technique to keep yourself open to the camera so it can see your face and see your eyes and see what's going on. That's, it's just camera technique. Right. Um, uh, also, when you break down commercial material, it's the same as breaking down material for any other medium. Uh, it has beats. Um, it's got some place you're trying to get to. It's got transitions. Uh, it requires the same analysis and the same sort of approach as any other scene work. Um, it may be 15 seconds, but it's got all the same uh, qualities as uh, as a scene from an O'Neill play. <laughs> yeah. You know, as far as you're concerned, in terms of you know analyzing this material and being able to make it play. Here's a, a thing that I know that it's interesting talking to some actors. I'm surprised, but they they have this stigma of thinking that a commercial a- acting is more presentational, more show. Right. So it's much more like presenting a product, like mm-hmm. you know. I, you know, clean this up with my bathroom. Right. We even tied, you know, yeah. whatever it is. So it's, it, and it's what's fascinating about your class, the four weeks that we were in it, and mm-hmm. we're, you're gonna, we're starting up the eight week course in the new year, is that um, it really just stripped us down. Like you were just like, let's strip you down. Like, not only, it was great because we were able to do the scenes or the, do the rehearse, um, the audition based off the commercial material. You recorded us, and we all sat in a class and we watched. Um, as our performance got better and better with the notes, w- with you just like stripping us away and saying, no, 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 smaller, go smaller, less, yeah. less. Do less, less. Less, less. And then a lot of it was really just trusting a material because the material will come in, the copy yeah. of a commercial that looks on paper, read very, very funny. So I was very interesting, like usually the first choices an actor will make, like you said, um, you talked about playing a concept and you talked about... Um, um, it's it, it, like a playing for the gag, yeah. As opposed to, and so yeah, it's kind of funny, but it looks like you're. It's like you're schmacking, right? Yeah. Because um, uh, I was talking to a director at a party. I, hey, we all go to parties, don't we? <laughs> Pretty cool. I went to a party last night. I was, and I met a, uh, I met a guy for the first time who was a director, and uh, and he was talking about how uh, actors are often unaware how the story has already been laid out for them. It's in the copy, it's in his shot list, and. All it requires from them is one simple thing to make it work, and they don't know that, so they overplay that one simple thing that he wants them to do. Make sense? Yeah. Uh, and he was also the one who said that thing to me about the screens getting larger and the resolution getting better. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, if you have good copy, the concept was the copy itself. They wrote the concept, and they've already done all the work. Now, as an actor, all you have to do is play it honestly, and you're done. And yeah. a lot of times, just playing honestly is this moment of doing nothing. And I saw mm-hmm. De Niro talk about this. Yeah. And what's interesting about the class, which helps, is that seeing, uh, doing the performance over and over. So we did like four or five takes. So mm-hmm. you're, you get this muscle memory. So then by the time like I start one way, and then when you start stripping it down, and I would um, try to get to that place where I was comfortable like doing... Nothing. Nothing. And then when we saw the results on camera, and you could see because having trust in the material and the copy, it works a lot better. Yeah. And I actually bumped into Ted Rooney about this, and yeah. we talked about this, and he said the same thing. When yeah. his time on ER, 
he said that he just he was the weirdest thing. He just did nothing. Yes. He said he you know had a bunch of episodes where he just did a literally nothing. Nothing. Like and it was and inside he could feel it like I've got to do something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend it really for stage work. Yeah. But uh, well, no, it's really the same as Ted says. The fire's still in the belly. Yeah, you know, you're still. You're still working the material the same way you did on stage, but your your energy level is pulled back. You know, you're just working easy. Yeah. Um, it it also requires a certain maturity to do nothing and be satisfied with that. Yeah. And so I, you know, I've I've noticed because I've gotten pretty old over the years. <laughs> and I'll look at people that I, you know, I've always been critical of actors. I should have been more critical of myself. But um, uh, actors that I didn't think were that great when they were younger, I've watched actors uh, become great actors as they've gotten older. And, and really all I'm seeing them do is they're getting too darned old to put that much energy into it anymore. So it's like, what do you want me to do? Yeah, I'll do that. And they simply do it and stop worrying about trying to impress anybody. Yeah. And suddenly they become good. And it just takes a certain amount of experience and confidence yeah. to, to allow yourself to do that. Yeah. You know, I, I, somebody had me watch um, a series last night. And there's a girl in this series who I have seen. She's uh, also a political activist. And I've seen her talk about political issues time and time again. And she's fantastic. And when she's talking about a political issue, she's just great. So the show happens to be about political issues. But on the show, she's acting her tail off hmm. instead of just being who she is and talking about these political issues. And, uh, and that was my problem with the show. The, the show was, uh, it felt forced. Interesting. Yeah. I do remember uh, coming in for an audition for you, and it was just for like a spokesperson mm -hmm. role. And normally, I've, I've done a few, but it's much more presentational, so it's like, so my... I almost had to do like a Ryan Seacrest thing. I call it the Ryan Seacrest energy, where yeah. if you, I'm sure if you met, he's so, his energy is always up high. So it's mm -hmm. like, you know, hey, here I am with Michael Taylor Fontaine, and we're going to talk about, you know. That's an announcer. The yeah. announcer. But mm -hmm. so he's always up high that yeah. way. And sometimes you kind of need that for certain sure. projects and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. it was interesting coming in for the audition because it was, uh, you're like, just talk to me as a conversation. Right. And it was like, oh, gosh. Because I had practiced the routine in this much more... Because I wasn't... You know, as an actor, I think this is what they're looking for. Right. So, you know, I read the copy and I came in. And then you're like... The curveball's like, no, nah, just talk to me. And I'm yeah. like, oh, my God. So it was, it was really So you weird. have to be like, willing to drop what your preconception it, was. You have to let that go. And then it was just like, um, hey, I'm just talking to a friend. This yeah. was every specific friend. Yeah. And, and it was really And as a matter of fact, what happened, I talked to the director of that spot last night. Um, man, I was busy, wasn't I? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they ended up hiring a non-actor. A non-actor? They hired someone who worked for the company. And it's not surprising because as, as, the, the national commercials for that company are done by the owner of the company, not an actor. Yeah. And so it's not surprising to me that she would have decided, oh, I think I've given a clue who it was. Uh, that <laughs> the, the, the owner of the company would have wanted one of her, uh, I don't know if she calls them employees, but an associate yeah. to, to do that role. But the interesting thing that the director did was... You know how I, I take you through spokesperson copy and I break it down into beats and transitions? Yes. He took each section and talked to that guy about that and let him talk to him about the machine and how it worked and why they designed it a certain way. And ah. Pretty soon it became the words that were in the copy 
Yeah. And when when he captured that moment, they shot it. And and uh, the director said it was it was always successful. Right. Uh, so what he was able to do with him was bit by bit take him through all the copy beat by beat. He separated it out himself. He knew where the beats were. Yeah. And just took that section and let this guy just make it organic, and uh, and it ended up having all the colors and all the interest that uh, that an actor would bring to it, but bring to it with their with their skill and knowledge. Yeah, that makes sense. That totally yeah. makes sense. Yeah. That was clever. But he didn't he didn't approach it as someone who thought that he should be presentational in any way because that's not who he is. He's a guy who builds this machine. Yeah, and it's just, it's funny because even. Um, like uh, Second City or improv groups, yeah. like you said, there's a there's a sense to overpresent sometimes. Like it's like not to say overshow. It can be. Yeah, like there's an energy to a, yeah. a live uh, improv show that's yeah. that may be a little over the top. It can be. It not can always, be. But that, but now we're talking about style, yeah. because um, because actors can be asked to play all kinds of styles, and sometimes a presentational style is precisely what the what the piece needs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but other times not. And uh, so, if an actor has really done their work over the years, they're able to adapt to any style that they're called upon. Uh, by the way, I, I, in 1975, I was in New York City, and I was doing a play. And I didn't know that the assistant lighting guy was Al Franken. I didn't know. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know. Him. But I knew that we were all invited to go to this, uh, go to a show that he was doing in a basement. So um, off, off, off Broadway. No, it was in the basement of a hotel uh, uh, in Midtown Manhattan, and uh, so we we go to this basement. I didn't know what to expect, and it was the National Lampoon show uh, in March before Saturday Night Live began. Ah, and uh, basically the cast was intact. That that cast basically went on to do Saturday Night Live. And uh, and so I saw these magnificent players, and they were playing at, at a higher energy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of Bill Murray, who didn't make the first year's cast, by the way. But Bill Murray, uh, uh, Bill Murray gave me the most amazing performance I ever viewed in my life that night. I I am still blown away by what I saw him do that night. I've never seen anything close to it. But here's a guy who can give you any style you want. Yeah. He can he can do the most subtle organic work uh, of any actor I know I, I, I still am in awe of his talent. Yeah, it's um, yeah, there's a reason why he's had longevity and yeah. fan favorite. But know. he did this piece that night that was really over the top, where he would <laughs> he would sing this Frank Sinatra kind of song. He was improving a song yeah. about how much he loved New York, and at the end of the song he would he would be in a crumpled clump on the floor, <laughs> you know, just a total mess. <laughs> Uh, the thing was entirely over the top, but funny as heck. Good God, yeah, it is. It's amazing to be in, in presence of uh, somebody who's just nailing it. It's just something. Uh-huh. It just it's inspiring. It's yeah. the, the, you're just like, wow, what I'm being transformed. Yeah. And that's the, the beauty of the core of like acting when you see a performer. Yeah, just in their live space, take yeah. you there. You're like, what is going on? I got to tell you something else that was weird though. About two years ago. Um, I went to a fundraiser that was, um, it was, uh, they were using a show I had done 30 years ago for a fundraiser. And they got some really big talent to perform the show. And one of the roles is Red, anyway. 
He reads it. It's in a, it's in a book. One of the greatest actors on the planet, we all think, uh, forget how many Academy Awards he's won, I think two, um, read this role terribly. <laughs> he bombed. He was awful because he was unprepared and also because he was a film actor. It's like that movie, you know, with, with Peter O'Toole, my favorite year yes, when he yes, goes, I'm yes. not an actor, I'm a movie star. Well, it was like that. It was like, this guy's a movie star, not an actor, you know? And it, it showed. It was interesting because on film, he's unbelievable. But on a stage, he couldn't pull it off. Isn't that weird? We just lost Peter O'Toole just recently. Yeah. I didn't realize he was that young. For some reason, I think with yeah. all the drinking he had, I think he looked a lot. Older, yeah, that's you know? true. <laughs> that's true. Actually, my my wife. Oh, this is the first time we bring her up. Mm-hmm. My wife studied with a, a dear friend of Peter O'Toole's. He was someone who came up with Peter O'Toole at RADA, and uh, was was actually a pretty well known actor. Uh, but he quit in the early '70s because of his drinking problem. He said, "I'm I'm just not gonna not mm-hmm. gonna drink anymore," which means I'm not gonna act anymore because I'm in that environment. So he became a teacher at a school in Florida, South Florida uh, University. Interesting. Uh, his name was Paul Massey, and he was a brilliant teacher. Um, but he he chose his life over being an actor. Fascinating. Never drank again. Now, you, that's an interesting thing to bring up. It's just like actors as being normal. <laughs> yeah. It's almost, almost impossible because you – not impossible, but, you know, when you're on a professional set, when yeah. you do, you're going to – you're representing your agency, you're representing yourself, you're representing the brand or the, the commercial. And there's there's a point of like this common sense of like common decent human etiquette of just yeah. being cool. <laughs> like, yeah. hey, you know, it's not about the flamboyant, uh, you know, the drama you bring to it. Yeah. And um, I'm sure over the years, I think you told us about this particular story, uh, an actor, that, I don't know, like you asked him like, okay, you're going to audition, don't go too crazy and like break the wall or something and then oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well that was just a, an actor who came in for a commercial audition and, and, and he was to be a hockey player oh, okay and i asked him to do something and i said and i said please don't break my wall just don't bang against my wall when yeah. you do this and of course he broke my wall you know because he yeah. was out of control right 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 yeah let me tell you do you have any um that are oh, any wild stories i'm sure you've seen over the years it's like like that actor just went there. Like they decided to come in and jump on a table and mm-hmm. hold a knife up to us and yeah. that kind of stuff. I've always heard these types of stories. Yeah, I um, uh, and boy, I don't know. Should I tell stories out of school? But <laughs> there are there are certain rules to acting. Of course, there are a yeah. ton of them. But the first one is to listen. The second one is to take stage and own it. The third one is to never apologize. And the fourth rule of acting is nobody and nothing gets hurt. Yeah, and uh, I I've broken that rule myself. I've actually I hurt my hand once, oh. but I was watching an actor that I really appreciated. It was someone that I studied with with Win Hanman, who's you know a pretty well known actor, and uh, he was doing. Um, um, oh come on! It wasn't True West. It was True West. Sam Shepard played True West. Mm. He was playing it in Los Angeles uh, with his brother. Oh, gosh, let's guess. Who was this? And uh, he cut his hand that night on a, on a toaster. There's this scene where there are a bunch of toasters in the room, and his brother's beating him up with a, with a golf club. And he, he lost himself in this scene and started slamming things with his hands and cut his hand really badly mm. that night. And um, 
I know he knew he stepped over the line. You know? <laughs> but you just, you can't, you know? Yeah. Uh, what is that film, uh, Mrs. Brown? Brown. Yeah, there's a film. There was a film that was uh, it's a, a British film about uh, an actress who's having a hard time controlling her life. With oh come on, I should know better. Warren Beatty's wife is Annette Bening. Uh, and someone says in this in this film that if you really believed, you know, if you're acting a scene and you really believe that you're experiencing that, you're crazy. You know, yeah. there has to be some separation there. You have to. You know, you're looking at this thing from a few different places at the same time. Yeah, you're committed to what you're doing, but you're also um, paying attention to what's going on with the other actors around you, with the technicians around you, with the audience, you know. And if it's not an audience, it's a camera. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, if, if you just lose yourself in it, then, you, you know, you're out of control. <laughs> and you end up cutting your hand or Right, right. Whatever. Just getting too... Yeah, just getting too involved with reality is like your job as a professional actor is to be able to perform that or act that and, yeah and do it and believe it to be believable but you can step back and go hey guys it's you know it is make-believe i think <laughs> yeah. they had i think they had uh, ian mckellen on um uh like a ricky gervais show and oh man was the, he, great. he came in and was talking about that oh, i love it's that like, he's asking the questions like How am i a wizard yeah he's like <laughs> right, yeah, he's no i'm playing a wizard <laughs> What yeah. I do is well, I know, the um, words Paul, on the paper. I read them. <laughs> Paul Massey, who I mentioned before, who was my wife's teacher, uh, said to her once, it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what we feel. Mm -hmm. You know, It's what the audience is experiencing, not you. Yeah. you know, it's not about you. That's why it's a, you know, what's the old adage of never work with the children or pets or animals yeah I was uh, W.C. Fields yeah yeah, <laughs> right but there's something to be said about that because not only the upstage but there's a uh, free abandons of just play you know like the, there's there's no hang up I yeah. mean those who those kids who are not like show kids yeah. are just being just being yeah um, there's a, such a beautiful innocent truth to that sure and you can learn from it can't yeah. you yeah in uh, Uda Hagen's book Respect for Acting she yes. writes about going to a play and there's a cat on the set in a scene and that she she couldn't take her eyes off the cat because the cat just sat on the table and watched what was going on <laughs> you know? and I keep talking in class I keep talking about how uh, present day comedy is really based on the work of Buster Keaton where wild things would happen all around him and he'd simply stare at it as it happened. Well, they call him the old stone face? Stone face. Stone face. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the funniest guy I ever lived. There's another thing I should point out. In your class, it's really great. Uh, one of the other notes you kind of gave me was, um, like, I know I was screwing up by flubbing some lines, but, like, I fight, <laughs> that I, I would fight through it until the end. And then, but I was still on camera, and mm -hmm. I would give this cringe face, like, "Oh, that sucked." And yeah. You, and you were tell us, like, "Don't do that." That's Which that's breaking that rule. Don't yeah. apologize, right? Yeah. yeah. Don't apologize. That's what I meant by that. And so it's it's helpful for other actors to know, like, because you don't want to do that is because you don't know. You don't know if that performance yeah. might have been actually one of your better ones. Yeah. That you, as the casting director, need to send that yeah. taped version to the client. Yeah. And because if you ruin it because you broke character or you, yeah. you didn't finish. Well, you, you've done two things, actually. Yeah. First of all, you've been, you've been kind of self-indulgent and you've apologized to the audience and you've said, I know I'm not that good in this scene. You know, 
I could do better. Yeah, that, that, you know, that's just you, you know, trying to save your behind right. in the eyes of the audience, right? Uh, yeah, and then the other thing is, yeah, you never really, <sighs> often when an actor goes up on their line, they can't remember what's next. It's because something really good just happened. And so what they need to do is just remain calm and find out what's going on. And the next line comes. It comes. But, uh, but if, you, if you freak, <laughs> then you've just abandoned that really neat thing that just happened. Um, I don't think, you, you would talked about you know, when, you, when you really worked out a scene and you finish it and you feel exhilarated, which is a neat feeling. But I don't really think that that's the goal, to feel right. like you nailed it. Uh, I remember uh, once my teacher, Wynn Hanman, said that he was walking by the theater where they were doing uh, uh, Waiting for Godot, and Bert Lahr came out. And he was walking his dog, and, and, and Wynn started talking to him about it, and, uh, and he said, I've got this one on a leash. I've got this, not his dog. He met this role. I've got this role on a leash. <laughs> and, uh, and that must have been a great feeling, but it's really not the goal necessarily, because very often... Um, uh, when you feel that way, you've just murdered a role. You you have no vulnerability. You've you've just taken absolute control over this thing instead of instead of living in the moment and letting the situation affect you. You know. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so so I I think we were talking about the the a documentary that was on recently. Was it was it Ryan Gosling? Yeah, we were it was, talking uh, about seducing abandon with Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and he, his name, uh, Tobac. Yeah, James Tobac. James Tobac. And he was talking, uh, Ryan Gosling was talking about how he always feels like a miserable failure every day when he leaves the set. Yeah. He feels like what he did just sucked. And, uh, and I think we know from watching his work that it, it didn't. Yeah. But it didn't matter what he felt. And the fact that he's not sure of what he's doing uh, has, has to do with his vulnerability, with his being present, you know, and not trying to control it. Right. Uh, or not. I, I probably should clarify that, you know, my performance, yes, I don't never felt that way, but I, I love the interplay with other actors. Yeah, no, like, I understand that exhilaration. That's the exhilaration. Yeah. Like, God, you know, so much fun to play off. Yeah. Like, whatever you're giving me, like, I, I did this um, job, like I said, so I took your class, uh, you know, in the third week of taking your class, I had this audition, and I applied all the stuff you taught me, and I got the role. And there was, you know, I think it was a project that maybe a lot of people may have passed up on, but I was very fortunate to get this thing. And then I had two days working with a, a really brilliant actress uh-huh. that was just, and, and the director was great. And it was one of those things that it was, uh, it just fired me up. It was mm-hmm. just one of those things, like this whole experience of just, because every scene had um, had a different, you know, emotional um, uh, focus. Yeah. And it was it was definitely a lot of hard work to mm-hmm. to try to get there. But I definitely appreciate just the collaboration. You know, and that's what I get fired about. When you step back and go, it just felt great to work with this director yeah. and this crew. It felt really wonderful to work with this actress who was just, you know, giving so much. And, and I felt the pressure to raise my game to yeah. give her even more to get to make sure that she had everything she needed to give the best performance. Yeah. You know, and that type of thing of of the core of acting or the essence yeah. of acting of the performing. Why you do this. Anyway, yeah, you're getting paid or not. Yeah, it really does come down to, come to that. the interactions you have with other people and the give and take and so on. That's that's what's so yeah. exhilarating about it. That's the high. But I you know I'll admit to you though. I mean, I did a lot of theater and I I had the fortune to be in a, a, a few shows that I just knew were going to work every night. They were going to work. Uh, 
they were always changing. Uh, you know, you were always finding new things, but you, you were sure as you stepped on, uh, you know, every night that that thing was going to take off. It was going to work. Um, so, you know, I've had that feeling of ex exhilaration, but, but it's, it, it was also neat that one, one show I got to do for a year and a half. It's pretty neat to get a job where wow. you get to work a long time. Yeah. And at the end of a year and a half, um, I was saying to myself, I was just starting to get that. You know, I was still working on it. And, uh, and that's a neat feeling, too. You can see that. It's actually funny with TV actors. Yeah. You can tell, like, there's a point where there's, like, they're making another season. <laughs> it's yeah. like you realize that the actor's like, I want to come back. I enjoy having a steady job and having the steady income. Oh, and, sure. And being on a show that, that's outside of Los Angeles and then I can have a family and a life that's outside. And it's, it's fascinating. It's like, you're like... That makes sense now, you know, you yeah. can see it because you know how volatile the industry is. Oh like, yeah, people lose, that quit series are crazy. Oh my gosh, they lose, they're like scrambling George around. George Clooney, is. where's his career gone, right? <laughs> he's a very, there's always the exception. Of there is, there? well, and he's a pretty brilliant guy, but, <laughs> but have, have you ever noticed, uh, you, I, you probably don't even look at TV Guide anymore, that used to be right. a big publication, but I used to notice that... Um, you know, if you started look, if you look through, go to the library and look at the TV guides, mm -hmm. and you look at uh, a few years ago, who was on the TV guide? It's like, where, where are they? Where's that guy? Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's just an opportunity to. Another th here's another thing. Another great thing about TV guide is they really force you to know how to write taglines or log lines because they only have like one sentence to sum up your your t your movie or yeah. TV show. Yeah. And it's really fascinating how they go about explaining, you know, whatever. Back to the Future, you know. Oh, so TV Guide is not lost on you. you no, no, no. You've no, studied no. it. They, they use that as a, as a glowing example if you're going to be a writer uh -huh. to see how to write a, a proper guide, a log line, tag line. I don't know which one is interchangeable. Which, whatever one is the one sentence, like you have an elevator pitch, here you go. What's your show about? What's your web series about? What's your movie about? You've got one sentence. And like, what would it? What? How would it be uh, written up in a TV guide? That's it's still a very valuable resource for anybody to check out. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'd never heard that one, but then I've never tried to pitch something. <laughs> anyway, you know, we can wrap up. We hit about uh, the hour. Okay. Hour mark. Right. You know, this is really going to be exciting because um, I can't wait to share this uh, to the community and other people that are actors and just want to know. I think we had a lot of valuable. Um, information that uh it's worth following up on and i can't wait to the new year for the classes to start again I, oh thanks we didn't even touch upon like half the stuff that you've been teaching but i can't first of all i can't even think about not only are you teaching but you're also a casting director right so when jobs come in those who are taking classes with you you know like what I know a little something about them. I mean, exactly. that's not that's not our point. Well, no, to some degree. I mean, I, I need to know yeah, you need everyone to in the community. Right. And uh, but also, I, I, I want uh, people to know because we're new here and we've come from Los Angeles. And I understand uh, in Portland, I've met a lot of people that have a lot of history here. Yeah. And I understand that that's important to this community. It's sort of a family. But I want to be a part of that family as quickly as possible because um, Jessica and I, Jessica Bork, my partner, want this to be a resource for the creative community here in Portland. We want it to be a meeting place, literally. Mm -hmm. We want it to be a place where people come to read their new plays or read their 
their, their script for their new independent film that they're working on, and also to study and learn and communicate with each other. So, uh, uh, and that's part, in part why I've actually opened up the doors here for having actors come in and just meet me. You know, I'm doing, uh, doing general interviews all the time here uh, because I want this to be a place where the community uh, can relate to each other and where, you know, where we can play a, a role. Yeah, no, for sure. My God, it's been it's been exhilarating. And those I know that the other actors I've been working with that I bump into um, on other events or something, we talk about the class, like how exhilarated we are about it. Oh, so, great, thank so, you. Uh, it's been a very, very good. And like I said, I can't can't tell you enough. I, I mean, I applied what I learned, and I it changed um, my uh, focus on the last job, and I was really, really, really thankful for that. So huh. cool. Thanks. There you go. <laughs> All right. And that concluded my interview with Michael Taylor Fontaine, uh, casting director up here in Portland, Oregon. And if you like what you hear, if you stuck around this long, um, please go to iTunes and leave a ratings and review. And that helps the little guys, these independent podcasts. And I'm little, like my mom. I'm just kidding. I'm not that little. I'm average height. So help that average height guy out. Anyway, enjoy yourselves, and we'll see you next time on the Film Trooper Podcast. Mm-hmm.